My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. It's simple. Kill the Batman. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Hello and welcome to podcast number four from the BBFC. This is the Film Classification Podcast. Thank you very much indeed for downloading. You have been doing that in your drove since we started this. Uh, number one seems a long time ago now, but we've had, if we add up the total number of downloads, we are well into the 50,000s, which is absolutely fantastic. My name is James Blatch, and my co-presenter for this podcast is a fellow film examiner, Mr. Hamad Khan. Hi, James. Great Hel- to be here. Hello, Hamad. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Thank you very much indeed for lending your voice. This podcast, we are dealing with horror. <laughs> That's right. Creepy horrorness. A genre and a classification issue. And we're going to talk a little bit about how we deal with horror. Of course, we'll deal with that in some detail. We'll talk a little bit about what is a horror movie, which is something that was thrown up by our first news item uh, today, which we're going to deal with before we move on to the subject at hand. And I was going to mention The Woman in Black. And the reason I mention it is because it's a film that's uh, sparked some controversy. It's been classified 12A. It is, if you like a horror movie, you might like to consider it a ghost story. Is it a horror movie, Hamad? It's pretty scary. It's, uh, it's certainly quite a classic... Um you know, old-fashioned uh, haunted house or ghost stories. Yeah, I yeah. think very much in a classic sense, a horror film. And, that, and the haunted house does look like the goth. If you painted a gothic haunted house, that's the one that's in the film. Definitely. Um, uh, the 12A was achieved after some changes were made to the film uh, following its formal submission. So uh, a few seconds were trimmed to what we described as some strong horror to bring it into moderate uh, physical and psychological threat that we do allow at 12A. The details of those cuts are on our website so you can read about them. There's no doubt that there is a fairly downbeat bleak tone to the film and uh, we're not going to give away anything here but in terms of the story there's nothing that really, there's no uplifting moments in it. Um, However it is very much a classic fantastical setting. It's a film, I think it's a film that very much telegraphs what it's going to do. It sets out to be a scary movie and you're there for the ride if you like it's a, it's the cinematic equivalent I think of going on a roller coaster isn't it you know what you're going to get into you know it's coming and you're there for the thrill and that's in many ways and that period setting no real world elements to it it's one of the chief reasons why it's a film that is contained at 12A however We've had, so far, as we speak, 110 complaints about it, which uh, certainly makes it the most complained about film of this year. We're only in March, uh, after all. Compare those 110 complaints uh, for The Woman in Black with 40, which was the most complained about film last year for Black Swan, uh, for some sex scenes in that, and 24 the year before for The Lovely Bones. In fact, we have to go back to 2008 to beat it, which was The Dark Knight, of course, which is the most complained about film in recent times of 400. But 110 complaints is significant. And, um, and people, I suppose, sometimes it's people who've got 12-year-olds with them. Quite often we get letters from people who don't have children with them but decide that they don't think the film is suitable for children. That's always an interesting distinction yeah, for they me. Yeah, offer their opinion um, generally. As it were, but I mean, considering that this is a film that we, was it number one, I think it did brilliantly. Didn't it's it? done very well in the box office, no L- question about that. A lot of people saw it. Um, now, having just uh, we're in the process of dealing with um, *Woman in Black* and *12A* and some of those complaints, let me mention another *12A* film, which is *The Hunger Games*. So this is the adaptation. Gary Ross has uh, adapted Suzanne Collins' book, which is about a, a future setting where children fight each other. 
and clearly thematically there are some issues there. Now this is a film that we worked with both uh, before its formal submission, i.e. the tail end of uh, the post-production process. I should mention actually, your colleague Kamal, you are actually a filmmaker as well as a BBFC film examiner, so you're somebody with... Allegedly. Allegedly, well no, you've had a distributed film with Slakistan, Um, and uh, a foot in both camps. So the tail end of that, that that project, if you like, before it's all wrapped up, is a good time, I think, to deal with the BBFC if you think there's going to be an issue. And um, in, typically in the past, things like the Bond films have come into us at that stage, haven't they? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, independent films perhaps uh, less so, but certainly where there's more money involved, uh, the costs of, uh, you know, post-production and then changing things, um, you know, time is money. So if you can, if you are aiming at an audience, then it's really best to get it done. Um, so the Hunger Games came into us for what we call an advice viewing and some changes were made to it at that stage to bring it in line to 12A. It came in for its formal submission. Further changes were made to it and uh, all of this again is detailed on our website. I think something like seven seconds was taken out of it um, to just change that from strong horror to moderate horror to allow it to be contained at 12A and uh, a few more seconds than that actually were taken out of it at the earlier stage of advice and we do uh, there is some transparency about that process it's not a behind the scenes process it goes onto our website and it's alongside the extended classification information the ECI that describes the issues in the films of course you can find those all at uh, bbfc.co.uk so still in the news section a couple of other bits uh, uh, items I wanted to mention one is that Tom Six the Dutch director has announced that he's going to make Human Centipede 3, wow. the final sequence. Well, we always knew, that he always said there were going to be three films in the uh, in the project. Um, we don't know a lot about it, except he has said, and if you're familiar with Human Centipede 1 and 2, you might be slightly confused by what Tom Six has said in the press, is, is that the two main protagonists from the first two films will both be in three. Now, as one of them is a mad scientist, if you like, in Human Centipede, Human Centipede 2... It's a real-world character, obviously still fictitious as a film, but he's watching Human Centipede, which is in the fictitious world. So how the two of them are together, I'm not sure, but we, we await. Um, and, of course, it's of note to us here at the BBFC because Human Centipede was a, a deliberately, I think, revolting um, idea, concept, and put into film in a kind of, in the genre of the mad scientist movie and was passed uncut at 18. Human Centipede 2 was more about the realisation of the process of what happens uh, in the first film. And that focused so much on that that we, uh, we cited concerns with the Obscene Publications Act and we actually initially rejected that film and then later, before the appeal, worked with the company to make significant cuts to HC2 to bring it to 18 um, with cuts, and that's how it was distributed in the UK. I mean, so the first film is, is kind of the story, the second film is uh, influenced by somebody watching the first film. I thought perhaps he would continue that chain and, and you know, maybe, thankfully he's missed the trick of sort of film examiners sitting and watching yeah. the Human Centipede 2. But, um, it could be about us though, couldn't it? I hope not. I really hope not. <laughs> um, uh, it's a walk-on part for us. My, my agent is, uh, is, I'll give his number out later. Uh, the other bit I wanted to mention, caught my eye actually today, is some press about this, um, which is that Film 4, the British uh, film production based on Channel 4, are shooting a biopic of Paul Raymond. And uh, Steve Coogan will be playing Paul Raymond, Anna Friel uh, playing his wife. And they're in production, shooting around Soho, around where we're speaking from at the moment. And I mention that because Paul Raymond was such a, a, a character and involved in terms of the BBFC as we went through dealing with pornography over the years. 
uh, we still get stuff, I think, that has Paul Raymond Productions probably yeah, written on yeah, it uh, into this building. But also because we are we are part and parcel of the landscape of Soho at the BBFC, and Paul Raymond was a very important character over the last 40 or 50 years. Absolutely, and it's um, you know equally interesting that Michael Winterbottom is directing the film. Winterbottom himself has had some really interesting films from a BBFC point of view in the past. Um, so it's interesting that he's kind of telling the story of, of, of pornography and sex. And it's shooting around the corner, you say? Yes, it's shooting. Well, the, fo- the photographs I saw in the paper today show uh, Steve Coogan and Anna Friel outside a couple of the sex shops that are literally just at the bottom of Dean Street. What a surreal sight that would be. Just sort of... <laughs> yeah. Go would, and have a look. That would be surreal. <laughs> and he had, the, he had that um, uh, trademark long, I guess it was sheepskin coat. I guess it was sheepskin yeah. coat. Uh, and a really interesting character, Paul Raymond. So a bit of a recluse towards the end, but somebody who, uh, in Soho's darkest days, and I'm probably older than you, Hamad, I am older than you, and I can remember this part of London being pretty grotty and pretty grimy in the past, but that was the point at which he bought up a lot of the properties, prevented them from being turned into yeah. you know, offices and so on, and kept a kind of beating heart of Soho going. So whatever you think about his... Uh, moral position, if you like, or his, 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 you know, what he brought to the world in terms of pornography, in terms of saving Soho from redevelopment, actually, he was quite an important person. Now, uh, a couple of BBFC things just to promote before we hear from our interviewee at today for this uh, podcast. Um, one is we are running, for part of our centenary year, we're running a series of articles on the website called From the Archives. And this is a rare opportunity outside of this building to read the original film examiner's reports. Hamad and I shudder slightly at the prospect of <laughs> oh, our, a little bit, yeah. our reports being read at some point in the future. Um, but we're uh, starting with a razor head that's already on there, 1979, of course, David Lynch's film and just published Clash of the Titans, the 1981 epic. Wow. Do you remember that? Everyone? I just did a report for the, the sequel to the remake last yes, week. Yes, the sequel so to the remake, which has just remake. gone through the building, yeah. yeah. Um, and you can go online and there are... In fact, it's not even redacted. There are the unexpurgated, is that the right word? I think so. It's versions. a great word, though. Yeah, it is a good word. I'm going to use it again. The unexpurgated versions of the, uh, the examiner's reports in PDF form for you to have a look at and just to see how people made notes. The way that we write reports has changed, slightly more structured, perhaps, than they were back in the day, um, but gives you a good idea of the work that we do. Now, we mentioned our education effort when Lucy was uh, co-presenting last time out, and a number of you emailed us afterwards to say that you didn't know that we spoke to schools and colleges and that we gave seminars here and you wanted to know how and why uh, we do it and whether we could go to your school in some cases. So I thought I would hear um, directly from those involved. We spoke to Heidi Renton, who uh, works with Lucy, one of our examiners as well, but works with Lucy on the education team, and I asked her about our education work. Well, James, um, basically it support, supports the BBFC's broader aims and key functions of being open, accountable, and having easily accessible regulation. So what that means from the education point of view, really, is that our outreach work demonstrates our strong commitment to engaging with the public. So we will go out and we will talk to people about the work that we do and try and explain it, put our decisions into context. And is there a lot of interest in that? I mean, our key aim, I suppose, is that people understand the categories and what they mean, and it's good if we can talk about our ECI and consumer advice. Is there a lot of interest in understanding the process of how we come to make the decisions, do you find? 
Oh, completely. Everybody's got an opinion on film. Most people have watched a film, even if it's not even in the cinema, have watched a film on DVD. And they have something to say about it. They have something to say whether they completely agree with us or whether they completely disagree with us. So, yes, it's an endlessly fascinating subject for a lot of people, increasingly with more media literate youngsters than they've ever been. There clearly is. Okay, let's get down to the nitty-gritty detail. How can a school book a BBFC examiner or speaker to come and talk to them? Um, it's really simple. Uh, they basically go to our student website, which is also aimed at teachers, sbbfc.co.uk. There's a section on there about seminars, and a teacher can go in and request either that we go out and visit their school if they've got a, a big class or if they're a long way away, or they can request to come here and we host in-house sessions here at the BBFC, masterclasses we call them, and they're free to come along and to do that either off their own backs or as part of uh, several of the public school tours that we collaborate with where we're slotted in alongside other organisations to do with media that schools will come and see. Okay, and there's another option, isn't there, which is this remote lessons. Is there a particular, uh, sort of like video conferencing I suppose it is, is there a particular bit of kit that schools need to in use that aspect? Yes, we've, um, we've been testing recently and have now properly launched our video conferencing facility which is great if you've only got say one or two students or it's a really long way away and it makes it difficult for us to reach in an acceptable time frame. But schools need to have a form of video conferencing, hopefully that's compatible with ours, we can always run tests with them and find out. Okay. So I can see why schools would want this, particularly if it fits into getting students on media or film courses to think in a wider sense about issues and context. Uh, what do we get out of it? it is completely a two-way street for us. Um, it's not just all give, give, give from our point of view, but for us it um, allows us to remain completely in touch with the opinions of um, increasingly media-savvy youngsters now and gives us a real sort of litmus and immediate test on the kinds of uh, things they're thinking about, recent decisions or, or policy. And we can take that, those kinds of opinions back to base and sort of chew them over and feed them into our more for formal guidelines process when we come and do that every, every few years. Um, so it really allows us to sort of keep our finger on the pulse of what future parents, basically, and future um, responsible adults and filmmakers uh, are, are thinking and how their media consumption is developing. It's a fascinating exercise. 15-year-olds can be incredibly judgmental yeah. <laughs> about what their younger siblings are watching, for instance, far yeah. more perhaps than we as classifying adults can be. But it is interesting. It's not what I expected going into the education role. I thought that they would be much more liberal younger teenagers about what they felt they, they and people of that age should be seeing. Now, I've had two fainters once when I showed one clip. Have you had any? I've not had a fainter, but I've had a thrower-upper, oh, <laughs> basically. You? I was showing um, Cloverfield to a group of National School Film Week students um, as part of the film education work that we do. We focus on a specific film. And um, I don't think it was the content of the film so much that made him throw up, but it was just the... Um, the shaky camera oh, held and the motion yeah. sickness thing. So poor guy, he managed to make it outside at least. And yeah. not, also we might have had an endemic of people throwing up. And that's a very interesting area. And in fact, we are doing some work at the moment on the whole area of uh, photosensitive uh, epilepsy um, triggered in some, some circumstances. There's been some talk uh, about the recent film Breaking Dawn Part 1 with a sequence which has apparently triggered some, some seizures in some people. 
Um, my two fainters were both at the same time, strangely. It was I showed the um, wrist-cutting scene from Rules of Attraction. And I won't show it again because even though it probably most of the time is going to be fine, it was a bit of a traumatic experience. So I showed the clip, which if you know the film, is actually quite I do. difficult. I do, indeed. It's yeah, hard to quite watch. a difficult clip to watch and um, quite a controversial clip from our point of view as well for various reasons. And I was just talking, it was about a minute afterwards, and one of the boys uh, just sort of went down onto the floor and thought, oh goodness. So we, we sort of crowded around him and then tried to give him some space and he'd, he'd fainted. And as we were doing that, I heard one of the girls saying, oh my God, look at David. And so one of the other boys went over just seconds later and I thought, what have I unleashed? Is this some kind of zombie virus that's attacking everybody? So yeah, that's the last time I showed that clip. Very wise. <laughs> now, Heidi, before you go, because you're from the education team, I wanted to ask you about this brilliant competition that we are running. Yeah, it's um, it's part of our centenary uh, celebrations this year, as you know, James, and it's it presents an absolutely unique opportunity, actually, for, for, for young people. Basically, on our children's website, so cbbfc.co.uk, although the competition is open to anybody up to the age of 18, um, if people enter and send in a design for their own black card, the bit that the certificate that goes before the main film, um, designing it around certain design parameters which are outlined on the site, if they win, they get the opportunity to have that shown in front of films across the country. And I really can't think of a better prize for a film fan than that. No, how cool would that be to sit in the cinema and see your black card come up in front of a film? Exactly. You've got uh, people who are interested in entering have got till the 30th of April to, to get it in there, so go to the website and have a go at it. Heidi Renton there with everything you need to know about uh, our education work and I was out at a college I've been talking, I was up in Huddersfield a couple of days ago at the Kirklees College, so a big shout out to them, they're a great bunch of students there who are really interested and fascinated with the whole process of classification and I, I'm, I don't know why I'm surprised to mind but it's always a pleasant surprise to have 18, 19 year old kids talking really brilliantly, intelligently about why we do our job, uh, what's great, to be gained yeah. for it and how we do it and, and their opinions and it's it's a challenging experience being there. As Heidi says, we get as much out of it ourselves I think as we uh, we put into it. That's great and, and, and that you get opinions from, from them as well about what they think about film classification. Oh yes, they don't hold back on that, so, which, is, uh, which is good. Um, now we are going to talk about horror. If we open the door to superstition, where does that lead? I believe even the most rational minds can play tricks in the dark. Who's that? The woman in black doing strong business in British cinemas at the moment and it's uh, sparked some complaints as we said earlier to the BBFC. We're going to come on to 12A in a moment but we're going to do what we always do which is to go through the categories with this particular subject, issue, genre if you like and we're going to start at you. Horror at you Hamad. Is there such a thing? Well there is. I mean um, you're looking at uh, an age range of sort of you know four upwards, four, five, six year olds and um, you know we're talking about kids that are quite new to the concept of insecurity and death and, and kind of the, the the world beyond the comfort of your own little kind of home and parents and that kind of thing so it's quite an important area where you don't really find horror films it's not a genre aimed at young children at you but you do have sequences in films and you do have kind of elements where we have a guideline at you for horror? We do, and what we say in the guidelines is that scary sequences should be mild, 
brief and unlikely to cause undue anxiety to young children and the outcome should be reassuring. And I think in addition to what it says in the guidelines, I'd say that the outcome should be reassuring fairly swiftly. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the thing about the insecurity is that we don't want stories where um, there is not a reassuring outcome. It's the reassuring outcome that will uh, prevent kids from having perhaps nightmares or being disturbed at that age at least. And an example of a film at you that is genuinely scary for children, and in fact for many decades was cut at you, uh, is actually Walt Disney's Snow White. Yeah, I mean, classic, uh, classic Disney uh, film based on the Grimm's, Grimm's tale. Um, and as you say, it's a, it's a very, very classic, popular fairy tale. But within the, within the story, within the film, there are indeed moments of what we can say is horror of the mildest form. I mean, there are scenes in, in Snow White uh, in which um, there, there are trees making grabs at Snow White, you know, sort of uh, crocodile-like logs that snap at her, and of course the, the famous you know, Wicked Witch as well. So there are elements that are quite um, mildly scary, shall we say. Yeah, and the Wicked Witch is perhaps not an unfamiliar image to young children in some of those frankly terrifying uh, Grimm Brothers stories. But the scene in the woods can be unsettling for younger children because there you've got your heroine, your sympathetic character who's by herself, alone, and appears to be panicking in the face of all these looming shadows and and trees. And for a very young mind, it's interesting for me that when we get older, we go to the cinema quite often to be scared, to be unsettled. But as parents, what we spend our time doing to our very young children is the opposite, is making sure that they feel secure and reassured. And at some point, we, as children, want to be frightened, the roller coaster thing, but at this age, you, we have to be very mindful of the fact that children, that's not the principal reason they're going to see a film. Yeah, it is a question of degrees, isn't it? And, and not to be scientific about it, but we do think about um, that age group and, and protecting them from too unsettling an experience, you know, off script or, or out of genre kind of norms. And certainly in the case of these films like Snow White and other films like it, you know, these sort of scenes of threat must be quickly reassuring and, and, and they are you know they should be either a, a joke or, or a, a reassuring scene that follows that lightens the mood and tells the kids oh it's okay and that and that's actually a really good thing because you know that's the way you want to know that we're here watching a film you know this is not something that's going to leave the cinema with me at this point yes and when it's misjudged and doesn't work as well we end up with 1978's watership down which is a film, here we are in 2012, we still get complaints about. We get a couple of them every year. And it sits at you for historical reasons. And I, I don't frankly know the ins and outs of how it arrived at you, but it would have been a, a stark choice, I suppose, the categories at that stage. But it's a film that's frankly terrifying. I mean, you've got <laughs> rabbit's teeth with blood mashing out. I think there's a use of what we'd call mild bad language in there as well. And there's lots of lots of things. I think it's safe to say that in 2012, that film would not be given a U. But it, it would does unlikely be made in the same way, yeah, to be honest. Well, that's a very, very good point. And, um, uh, but it does sit at you. And that's where horror doesn't really sit properly for very young children. OK, well, let's move on to PG. A PG ostensibly covers a sort of 8 to 12 range. And again, we allow, of course, we talk about horror at that age, and we say frightening sequences should not be prolonged or intense. A fantasy settings, however, might be a mitigating factor. Crucial for me there is that although we say frightening sequences should not be prolonged, we are saying 
you, you can have them. You can have them. There can yeah. be frightening sequences in a PG film. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're talking about eight, eight to twelve. So uh, this is where um, we, with we imagine children becoming more familiar with, uh, you know, slightly more disturbing concepts in films, and and just stepping out a little bit of their, of that comfort zone, and, and certainly. Um, we don't want prolonged or intense scenes, but the degree has moved forward a bit. You know, it's a little bit more allowed, as it, as it were, but very much in a fantasy setting as opposed to real settings. So, can you give us some examples of horror at PG, Hamad? Yeah, I mean, a film um, from a few years ago that that I watched, an animated film, a very well animated film called Coraline, um, about a young girl who finds a a trapdoor in her house, which leads to another world. Um, quite a dark world in which sort of there are creatures, uh, uh, sort of robot creatures, and quite dark, unrealistic creatures. Um, the tone of the film is quite dark, and mm. uh, it is quite unsettling. The whole film, as it were, rather than just one sequence, um, and it, you know, in some ways plays like a you know young girl's <laughs> nightmare, effectively. But um, having said that, uh, it is very much a fantasy setting, um, and the sequences in the film play briefly, albeit you know, at, at regular intervals in the film. And there is a sense of mild threat rather than anything more serious or intense. And at the time I remarked that you know, some parents will probably find this difficult at PG. Yes, it's closer to 12 than you, I would say, in the PG spectrum. That's right, and there were some complaints, even at the fact that we passed it at PG. So um, it's that kind of horror. You know, it's, uh, um, there are reassuring outcomes, but there are longer scenes of threat, possibly. And I thought one of the saving aspects for Coraline is the fact that Coraline herself is, is resourceful and she doesn't appear panicked at any point. She doesn't appear out of control, though it's, it is a bit of a nightmarish world and she is scared on occasions. And of course, the younger the, younger the child, the more they, they see the film through that protagonist's eyes and experiences. And that was quite important, wasn't it? That's right. I mean, if you are a young girl, for example, watching it, you know, you can identify with her as a heroine. Um, and that will carry you through, but it's probably possibly the treatment was a little dark. Yes. Okay, well, let's move on to the big category in terms of the commercial aspects of films, and that's perhaps one of the reasons why companies who've distributed, for instance, Women in Black and The Hunger Games have worked with us to get their films in at 12A. We do allow moderate physical and psychological threats, um, provided the disturbing sequences are not frequent or sustained. So again, it's, it's what is allowed that's defined by what's not allowed there. So moderate physical and psychological threat. Um, hence, the woman in black. That's right, very recent and uh, quite, a, quite a classic example of, of a 12A f- uh, horror film, as we discussed. Um, I mean, I, when I saw it, I, I found it quite a scary film in parts. Um, a bit like the old uh, the, the old Hammer films, I think. Obviously, it is a it is a Hammer produced yes. film, um, and the question really hinged upon whether this there is moderate threat or it's perhaps a bit stronger. And then you bring into play all the kind of arguments about whether you know it's a fantasy film, it's um, you know not very much set in the real world or contemporary. We're talking about ghosts at the end of the day. Yes, yeah, supernatural elements. Su- supernatural elements. How reassuring, uh, you know, are the outcomes? How how bleak is the tone throughout? Is it strong? Is it palatable? Is it sort of? 
So these were the arguments we had. Yeah, and there's no question that it's towards the top end of 12A. And had you changed one of the elements you just outlined there, for instance, had it not been set in a Victorian time but set yeah. in a modern house, yeah. that might have been enough for it, just not to for us not to be able to contain it at 12A. But the the setting does provide some distancing for the audience. You know that you're in for a theatrical experience. Exactly. It reminded me of uh, you know a film we passed some years ago called The Others. And there's a great story that I have for, th for that, that film, watching that film. I mean, and I think it might underline um, what, we, what we're trying to get at here, which is I watched The Others with my younger sisters back, back in 2001, 2002, you know, packed house, packed multiplex. And there's quite a, a big jump moment towards the end of that film. And she just sat next to me. And, and when this jump moment happened, she let out the most intense scream, which went from the back of her throat across the cinema hall, right into the screen. It was like a mad scream of complete and utter terror. There was this moment after that, after the jump moment, her scream, where everyone, everyone just froze. And then there was this outbreak of laughter amongst <laughs> everyone, the whole audience. And it was such a great moment, because it was that moment that reminded me why we come and watch horror films. Everyone just became really self-aware that we're yes. here watching a really scary film. And yes. it, was quite, it was quite kind of almost you know, relaxing and a relief for everyone that we could do that. So that's really where it's you know, it comes in, this woman in black thing as well. Indeed, it's funny how jump moments often do provoke laughter. And I think it's a kind of nervousness that follows it. And some people might be laughing yeah. expecting us to believe that they didn't really find it very frightening but I think the laughter belies the fact that it was it did get to them and it, yeah um, it's like a sort of nervous dance between the viewer and the, and, and the film you yes know, the, the, the treading carefully I mean my my story about the others which isn't quite the same um, is when I was working for the BBC I was sent to a press conference with Alejandra Amanabar who just made it and um, I have to say having seen it I this is pre-BBFC, I thought that's a really strong 12A film and I asked him about it, but of course I think he's Spanish and he's, as far as he was concerned uh, it was far too high and this is very much a film for children and mm -hmm. uh, therein lies perhaps the difference between a filmmaker who obviously it's his baby and his project, he wants it to be seen by everyone and terrify them and the responsibilities of a regulator like ourselves who have to sit in the middle and work for both the consumer one on the one hand and the industry on the other hand. That's right. And, uh, and, and the tone is, 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 is something that we developed as a, as a kind of, we became more aware of tone uh, around that time as well with films like The Others. Yeah. Um, and now, you know, it, it really does play a role. Sometimes you don't see anything and it just feels, uh, you know. What you don't see, well, that's a very big part. Dot, we could dot, talk dot. for a long time about that, <laughs> couldn't we? What you don't see in cinema is often more terrifying than what you do see. Um, and just to underline the fact that not every film, it may sound like with The Hunger Games and Women in Black and the others, they all get into 12A. We had a film called Disturbia a few years ago, which had a modern day setting. It had a threat that ran throughout, and it had some moments that we felt in the end meant that the film as a whole, forget some cut, forgetting cut, the film as a whole could not be contained at 12A and that film went at 15 in the UK. And I know that it went at PG-13, the 12A equivalent in the state, so that was perhaps a, us taking that tone, tonal quality into account. Yeah, it certainly does uh, play as an overarching factor. I mean, um, audiences are becoming increasingly familiar with the kind of, where there's an element of fantasy, you know, where you have a Twilight or where you have a Harry Potter, there are pro there are probably, or there is probably rather more uh, leeway to push you know push the boundaries a bit because people are familiar with fantasy settings. Disturbia is a really good example of a, a real world thriller or real world kind of yeah. Hitchcockian um, thriller. So it 
possibly that's what the difference might be. And you mentioned Harry Potter. We should probably just mention um, the great franchise. For uh, it's been yeah, the, yeah. one of the most. Com- I think it is the most commercially successful franchise of all time. In fact, um, and Harry Potter, in a way, has become. Although it started off as uh, you know primary school children's books that that dealt with a, a boy wizard, they became horror films for children. That's what they became. That's and right. Yeah. They were dark and menacing. They grew uh, up with the films, didn't they, pretty much? Yeah. I mean, yeah they sort of started at the, the PG level from our point of view. You know, uh, you had sort of scary spiders, I think. Chamber of Secrets, yeah, yeah. 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 I'm not, I'm not a, I have to confess, not a Harry Potter expert, but I'm okay. going to play along. I have read the books and seen the films, so I can just about r- distinguish between the stories now. Great, well, you take the lead. But I, I, know, I remember seeing the, the scary spiders in the second film, Goblet of Fire. Uh, Chamber of Secrets. Chamber of Secrets, <laughs> yes. I approved. Did you say that? Yeah, I approved. I'm not a fan. <laughs> but, um, and then you had... Um, the Prisoner of Azkaban, which was also a PG, but it kind of continued that vein of mild, sort of, you know, mildly sustained threat from wolf characters or other, you know, creations. And then... Goblet of Fire, which became the first 12A, yes. Yeah, right. So, uh, and then we had, of course, the the last Deathly Hallow. Yeah, which was split into two, the last book. And by this stage, I think from Goblet of Fire onwards, you are, I mean, they were classically, everyone said about this in the papers, it's the darkest one yet. I mean, yes, obviously they were getting darker. Mm. And by the end, you had films. But interestingly, I mean, I, I had a quick check on the system, no complaints to speak of for those films. Such a familiar, and that's an important point of view from our uh, aspect, from our point of view. Uh, uh, people are familiar with what, what's coming. Yeah, and they love the films. Yeah. So, so is, is an advice could be make good films that are loved, they yeah. will be fine. If only the directors have thought about that. <laughs> That's the missing ingredient. Okay, well, let's move on to 15. We mentioned Disturbia, which was at the bottom end of the category it moved into there. And it's quite a broad category, 15. Um, if you think Disturbia got in there for some, some sustained, sustained threat, and then think of House of Wax a few years ago, which actually has uh, some fairly strong violence in it, and in our time, certainly in my time here at the board, uh, we've seen the Scream movies go from 18, because of sort of bloodletting in it, to them being passed at 15, the most recent one, Scream 4. So you can have some fairly strong violence at 15. I'll just read the horror line uh, in the guidelines, which is that strong threats and menace are permitted unless sadistic or sexualized. So it's almost you have to go that extra mile to find the 18 category now. That's right. I mean, it's interesting because when you're getting into the sort of 15 realms, you're getting into real, you know, uh, uh, people who've watched horror films, they might love them, they might be horror fans. Um, and it kind of branches out a little bit into two um, areas. One is the threat side, the actual disturbing menace, and then you have the gore and the blood and the violence. And so we, we, we look at films like uh, House of Wax, um, for example, as being too strong in terms of visual detail. What I actually find interesting are, are the films that make it to 15 purely on the basis of horror, where you know possibly if there wasn't that particular issue, the film might have gotten away at, at lower category. For example, The Exorcism of Emily Rose, mm. which is uh, quite a compelling and convincing horror film. You know, very much a sort of modern day courtroom drama take on uh, you know whether a character is, ac- is actually possessed or, or is mentally ill. So it's kind of like a modern-day exorcist, but it's a film that was past 15 um, for strong horror, purely for strong horror. Uh, and I just find that interesting because it's, uh, it just shows you an example of a film that is basically too scary for 12A. Mm, so before we move to the adult category, to 18, um, what else have we got at, at the 15 level there, Hamad? 
Well, it's good to be recent. Recently, uh, there's been a US remake of a Uruguayan horror film called The Silent House. Uh, it's basically a, a girl coming to a ha- her father's house and discovering uh, quite dark secrets. The interesting thing about the Uruguayan film, which is also replicated in the American film, is that there's a sort of a gimmick of it being one single take throughout the whole film. And this kind of creates uh, an interesting atmosphere for the horror. Um, it was uh, classified at 15 for strong violence and sustained threat. It is quite an unsettling, scary film. Um, you know, it, it's very creepy. The way it's it's shot and the way it feels um, is is certainly quite quite unsettling. Yeah, I saw the Uruguayan original, um, one of those films, and it was interesting for everything it hinted at that didn't necessarily come to, because we thought quite a lot of the time, actually, this may go to 18, because some of the things they were leading us to believe were taken place. There is a twist, but we There won't. is a twist, we won't go there, yeah. but I am, I am going to move on to 18 at that point, because that does bring us into the sort of sadistic and sexual part. Now, 18, we don't have specific issue guidance in our guidelines because at the upper end of the BBFC spectrum of categories, we basically take the view that adults should be free to choose their own entertainment as long as it's within the law. And there's a sort of further caveat to that within the Video Recordings Act, specifically that it shouldn't cause harm. Uh, Although there's obviously a debate about what can and cannot cause harm from what you watch. Um, So I I guess the biggest, one of the strongest horror films of recent years for me at 18 has been Hostel 2. Mm. Um, And this deals with backpackers in Eastern Europe who are murdered ritually um, by wealthy um, bidders who want to do that. And there's one particular scene uh, with a girl suspended upside down over a sort of drainage area that's got a butchery and stylized ceremonial aspect to her slaying and it's a strong scene of violence isn't it yeah i mean this is a uh, very much a staple of the torture porn subgenre the so-called torture so-called porn. torture porn subgenre of which hostel the hostel franchise is a very important using the word important but very yeah a very key um franchise as well as sort of the saw films and uh, you've got Films like Wolf Creek, for example. Yeah, well, Wolf Creek's slightly different, isn't it? Because Hostel 2, although it's ostensibly real world, there's a kind of strong, fantastical element to it. It almost plays on the old Draculas, that sort of Eastern Europe. Um, some people did accuse the original film of being subconsciously racist in its views of Eastern European people, but it's, it's certainly slightly removed. Wolf Creek is a different film, a much more disturbing film in many ways, because this is very real world, set in the Australian outback, backpackers again who are uh, held hostage by uh, a sort of outback rogue farmer and we've had the Peter Falconio murder case, a real world event and they've got a lot of publicity and it's, uh, it's, a, it's a dark and menacing film isn't it? Yeah, Wolf Creek is played totally straight and uh, there isn't that kind of irony or comedic element to the horror which you find in quite a few films these days. Uh, so comedy horror films like you know, De- Deliverance or Zombieland or the Edgar Wright films, um, it's very straight and that's that's part of the terror, yeah. real there world horror. There are no laughs to be had in Wolf Creek, are there? Not at all. And then there's also the element of sadism, you know, this kind yeah. of sadistic uh, uh, context to the killer or the pursuer or the film. Uh, and then, of course, the sexualization of horror. These are all kind of things that add up to that routine yeah. uh, prospect. And there's a point at which when, although I, like I said earlier, 
according to our principles and set out at the beginning of our guidelines booklet that adults should be free to choose their own entertainment within the law, there does come a point when we feel that we can't pass a work because of its potential for harm, potentially it might be illegal. And an example of that is a film called The Bunny Game, uh, which was uh, distributed last year and came into us for classification and rarely, one of only two last year that we refused the classification for. And this was about the abduction and the sexualized terrorization of a woman uh, all takes place in the back of a trailer, lorry trailer. And when we watched the film, we decided that really, what is the sell on offer here? Is this a spooky film with a series of surprises? Is this a film that uh, you think she's going to escape any moment? Actually, it's not. It's a film about what happens to her and it's about the detail of that. And we got to a point where you are basically eroticizing the sexual terrorization of a woman and that firmly goes into an area uh, where we are going to intervene and come down quite hard, i.e. refuse a classification. That's right. I mean, these are, these are areas of uh, where we take uh, you know, advice and we have research and, and um, we are bound by the Video Recordings Act, which look, requires us to, to look at areas of harm um, and where we find uh, potential scenes of eroticized or endorsed sexual violence, we will always uh, debate those very, very carefully. And a film like The Bunny Game has those kind of scenes throughout the film. Um, the, uh, in this case, it was uh, deemed to be too problematic and too, potentially too harmful. Okay. Well, Hamad, thank you very much indeed for helping us go through the guidelines. Uh, uh, it's in been terms a real pleasure. Well, it's, it's been interesting for me and uh, I hope for our listeners. Um, to work out how we deal with horror. It's its own thing, horror. It's the only genre, if you like, that gets its own classification issue guidance in the guidelines. And uh, there's a lot of crossover. Wolf Creek, you know, that's that whole thing about what is a horror film. Wolf Creek could be described as a thriller, I suppose. Now, before we go, I just wanted to trail a couple of uh, things. If you are interested in the work of the BBFC, our director, David Cook, writes a blog in uh, the Huffington Post, which you can read online. The latest one has just been published and has some fascinating uh, views on our historical context. And you can follow us. We are at BBFC on Twitter. That's at BBFC. You can follow me. I'm at James Blatch. Uh, all one word. Hamad, are you on Twitter? Do you want to say your Twitter handle? You don't have to. I've actually left Twitter. You've left Twitter? <laughs> Leave me out of it. You've yeah. walked away. I've walked from away from Twitter. Okay. You can follow us and keep up to date with things that are going on the board if you're desperate to get your next hit of BBFC news before the next podcast. But until that time, from all of us, thank you very much indeed. <laughs>